Welcome back to Success and More Interesting Stuff. Catherine Orfrey came out of left field. Things were changing for young women in the 1980s and planning for a working career had become desirable. Getting a job in the share market, though, was hardly on the short list of suitable occupations. To make matters worse, the Australian funds management industry was in its infancy and a career managing money wasn't high on the list for anyone, let alone a girl from suburban Brisbane. It did not take much to light the fuse, though, and Orfrey was head over heels in love with the market from a young age. A chance meeting with a share market doyen saw her land a job in the celebrated colonial first date investment team, headed by the dynamic duo of Greg Perry and Ian Hardy. From that moment, she has gone from strength to strength. The first female to be inducted into the Australian Fund Managers Hall of Fame, Orfrey stands as one of the nation's truly great money managers. In establishing Waystone Capital in 2006, she went into an even more select group, female owners of a funds management business. She also doubles as a torchbearer for more women entering the finance industry, a problem that persists today. Hello, Catherine, and welcome. Hello, Matthew. Thank you for having me. Three principals at Wavestone. Yes. One Hall of Famer. <laughs> do you wear a badge around just to remind people, or do you have your own chair? <laughs> no, there's no team and I, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a me. There's an M and an E. There is a me. And the trophy's at home. It's not at work. <laughs> Um, so, no. But that was a great honour. It was very much a great honour. And the wonderful thing was that Graham Burke actually made introduced me that night to oh, all the fund managers. Yes. Graham and being I, one of your partners at Correct. Wednesday. And I had to actually cut my speech when I got up to about five minutes because he went on for about 15. So he made the most beautiful, heartfelt... Was gushing, was he? Yes. <laughs> speech. So do you remember what you did talk about? Women in the industry. And I actually appealed to everyone in the room, which was all, you know, pretty much all the money makers there to do more about having females in the industry because mm -hmm. we're so low, like, you know, less than 10% of the industry is female. Um, unless those decision makers make the changes, it's not going to happen. All right, we'll get back to that. Let's go back 30, 40, whatever amount of years to <laughs> Brisbane in the early 80s. Yes. You were, you were what were you interested in as, as a young girl growing up in Brisbane? What were the things that took your interest? Uh, tennis and sport. I love sport. Competitive? Quite competitive, yes. Surprise, surprise. Captain of the school tennis team. Strong back We won. <laughs> <laughs> we won the trophy, so that was important. Uh, no, oh, I had a you know, very typical background, except my background was different in that my father was you know, always in small business and he, his family came out of small business really on the land and orchards in uh, Adelaide and then he was in timber business and then went into food actually over the years. Um, what, food wholesaling or retail? No, retail, gourmet food after timber, you know, moving on from timber. But um, I always sort of grew up with a business background. So what was going on, you know, daily business, you know, how much, what was the sales total, what was happening with employees. I was always sort of understanding about, you know, that person hadn't paid the bill this month or so I sort of grew up on that sort of diet and did you, then did you work in the business I did actually from 13 dad put me behind the register on a you know Saturday afternoon I'd sit there and help him and then later on I helped um, doing invoicing and ringing up people and asking them to pay the bills you know all the basics of business um, I did all of that when I was really quite young and what were you good at at school I loved history and I loved economics Okay. Yeah. I had a great Not mathematics. I was in the advanced maths group. 
Um, I was never top of the class in maths, but I, you know, was good enough to get through. Yeah. And the economics, mm. because I've, I've heard you talk about broad, big picture, macro stuff before, mm. and how mm. you incorporate into your investing. Mm. Where did that come from? Did you? Is that, do you think that came from your dad running a business? Yeah, I think it was very much about business. It was about you know economies. It's about uh, the world. You know, it was all just sort of intertwined. Um, so that was really important to me. Um, there's another point too is that my grandfather was a diplomat for Australia, uh-huh. so Sunday lunches were also spent you know listening to him and my parents talk about you know what was happening in world affairs, what was you know all, the, all those sort of things, elections, you know politics, everything. So I stimulating would stimulating stuff. Yeah. And was that your grandfather on your mum's side? Or? Yeah, my mother's side. Right. Yeah, yeah. And what did your mum do? Mum was a housewife, but then she supported dad in business and then she worked for the business as well. Yeah. And siblings? I have a brother and a sister, both very successful in their own right. And what do they do? One is the treasurer of Suncorp and another one is the chief legal counsel for Teasts. Okay. Mm. So both in the business world effectively. Yeah. Yeah. And do you think they had the same kind of environment that encouraged them to go down that path? Totally. Totally. And they totally uh, understand, you know, um, about business and backgrounds and um, politics, world views on things. They have that exact same diet (laughs) they grew up on. So then you arrive at work experience, which I think, well, in New South Wales, it's year 10. I don't know if it's the same. Yeah, it was sort of grade 10, grade 11. Yeah. And your your mum and dad had different views on what, what would be interesting. Yeah, well, my mum actually was a teacher. That was originally her career. And so she sort of said to me, oh, you know, you always love children. Why don't you get into kindergarten teaching? I tried that for a week and I really didn't like it. I loved working with the kids, but the problem is I felt quite brain dead at the end of the day because um, I didn't find it stimulating enough. Uh, So therefore, Dad said to me, well, why don't you try uh, stockbroking? And so I went to Nevitz in Brisbane, uh, and that was 1986, I think and had a wonderful week there. And that, I just found that whole environment so stimulating, you know, from getting up first thing in the morning to reading the newspapers, to getting in there and calling clients and interacting with the news every day. Um, and those days too, the, the messages on the stock exchange would come through a voice over. The squawk box. Yeah, the squawk box. Um, and so everyone would stop, you know, if it was an important message to listen to what the announcement was. So then you could, you know make a call on what was going on. but uh, so, so the room at Nevitz, mm. all male? Pretty much from memory. And that wasn't daunting, especially at your young age? Or? Oh, no, I didn't. I think because, I mean, maybe the guy who was looking after me at the time was, you know, my father's age, so it was sort of more elderly. Mm-hmm. So, no, I wasn't daunted. I think also, I must say, the school I went to was an all-girls school, but we had a male principal, mm-hmm. and that principal was very much about telling girls you can do anything. So all of my friends now, they're very similar. They've got this view, well, we can do anything. What Being female, why is that a barrier? So principles do matter. Yeah. <laughs> and so what was exciting about that room? Was it the fact that there was a lot of news happening? Was it the fact that people were energised? Or did you actually get a bit of a, a glimpse into the excitement about stocks moving up and down? Stocks moving up and down... Uh, making, you know, making decisions that end up with better outcomes for clients, right? People, you're making people happy, really, because you're improving their income for them. Uh, so I enjoyed that part of interacting with the clients. That was really 
interesting. So you're well. on the phone in that first week. No, 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 just listening. So, you know, you'd have the meetings. So you'd go in and listen to that part. Yeah. And did you end up getting a part-time job there? Because work experience is No, I went down I went down to Sydney and I went on the ASX, you know, loud cry floor before they closed it down with Nevitz here. And then I went to university. So I didn't, no, I didn't keep working there. Why would they bring you down to Sydney to do that? Because I asked at the time and they said, sure. And so I came down here for a couple of days and had the experience here in Sydney. So that was your idea? To ask them to say, can I yeah. come down and have a look at what yeah, the actual yeah, yeah. market yeah, is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And was that exciting? Oh, brilliant. <laughs> In hindsight now, because it's, you know, so different. Everything's online now, right? So just to have that memory, yeah. Well, it's a lot more tangible too, isn't it? Now we just look at screens. Yes. And numbers just go up and down. Yes. It doesn't feel as real. No. And so you go to university mm. and you know what you're going to do then? Is it set in stone? Well, I decided to do economics because I loved it at school. And then monetary economics really appealed to me when I was doing economics. And I, you know, topped the year in that. But I then thought, right, this is really interesting in terms of shares. But when I was doing uh, my economics degree, I did a major in Japanese. Mm -hmm. So I sort of made this tangent where I, you know, went out and then lived in Japan for six months after finishing university. Um, teaching English and studying Japanese. And that, when I came back to Australia, I got a job back here in Sydney and it was right in the middle of recession. And if I hadn't had that Japanese language skill, I wouldn't have got that job at Daiichi Kungyo Bank. Because Japan was at its, at its peak in the late 80s. Correct. So just well, just yeah, about to early reach its 90s. peak. It was, it was actually quite an extraordinary time to be there in 1990 because that was the peak. And, of course, it's been downhill ever since. Was it noticeable? When you arrived, did you feel this place is doing incredibly well? No, we couldn't work it out. So we would spend time when we were there trying to work out why this place was so important, you know, and so big and the land was so expensive. And, yeah, so we... We? So you went with a... I, I went with a friend and we would talk, you know, with people that we would meet over there, other expats. So that was your gap year? That was my gap year, effectively. And then I worked for this Japanese bank back down here in Sydney, and that's when I moved to Sydney. And so what, what you, you had a couple of different jobs with banks, I gather, because you ended up in Sydney and then eventually London. London. But yeah. were, you a, were you a credit analyst? Is that Trainee credit analyst. You know, I was pretty young. And that was dealing with top 100 companies in Australia. So I sort of had my first taste of, you know, one-on-one meetings with you not know, a company, the Japanese principal too. Um, meet with the uh, treasurer or CFO of Australian corporates. And so when you did your economics degree, did you do accounting as well? Yes, intra-accounting, yeah. So when you were analysing these companies mm. in this job, was mm. that was were you prepared for that or was there a lot of learning as, a, as an assistant? Um, I think uh, I was prepared for it, um, but at the same time, you're always learning on the job, right? Uh, and then I went from there. I didn't, what I learnt, unfortunately, was I found the men in particular, which is probably why I've got a bent now, very sexist and quite racist. The Japanese men? In, that I worked with, yeah, unfortunately. But that, that's possibly more part of the culture as opposed to... Yeah, definitely. And it was 1990, so 30 years ago. And when you say quite sexist, would dismiss you? Oh, they want you to make tea. Things like that. When it wasn't your job. <laughs> <laughs> well, then make it your job, really. And when you're a young girl, you don't have, you know, 
much but, choice. But were you cranky at the time, or did you you look back now and you say, "Well, that was no." My mother always taught me silly. to be polite, <laughs> which is a good trait. <laughs> exactly, polite and friendly. <laughs> so, how long did you last under that environment? Not quite two years. Yeah. That's good. Two years. Oh, is, thanks. <laughs> no, two years is is normally where you those first two years. So when you go to get your next job, if you've got two years experience, people take notice of you. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So you went from there to? London, did gap year again, but spent the time over winter working for Credit Suisse and financial control and also working there. I could never get into front office because I didn't have the right visa, so which is why I came back to Australia. But during that time, I w would work with traders. So front office is... What do you mean well, by that? Well, front office is like investment banking, the ones who interact with the clients, whereas back office, you know, you financial were work, You were doing financial controlling for Credit Suisse itself rather yeah. than dealing Within with that outside department. clients. Yeah, yeah. And did you learn a lot from that? I did because it was all numbers. So that was, that was great. And then I learned uh, a lot about the way the investment banking process works and how an investment bank works because I was there. I wasn't there for that long. I mean, it was nine months or something. And so you've, you've done two and a half, three years worth of work. Yep. At that point, do you know what you're going to do then? No, I think that everyone evolves, right? I, I, I was always interested in the, in the stock market. Um, and what happened was I came back to Brisbane. Mum said, right, you know, you're now going to settle down and marry a nice Brisbane boy. And, uh, you know, forget this sort of travelling and career and, you know, that's you're going it. going to be polite. Yeah, exactly. Um, and marry a nice Brisbane boy, which... Eventually I did, um, but he was a Sydney boy. Uh, anyway, and so I moved to um, Sydney because a friend of mine rang me up and said she'd just gone for a job at SBC Deminks Barry, which SBC Australia became. Well-known broker in yes, Australia. which became SBC Warburg, which is UBS today. Uh, and so she said, oh, I've just gone for this job. Um, they're only paying, you know, about... I think it was about a third less than she was on at the time. And she said, so it's not enough. And I recommended you because I actually thought, well, I know that you like the share market and I know you've done economics and I, th and you know, I know you're looking for a job. So ring this guy. And the job was what? Assistant analyst to Owen Evans, yeah, in the research department. And he was head of research at the time. So you had to learn how to smoke. Oh, well, that's my memory of Owen. He was I, always exactly. hanging outside the building with a smoke in his hand, willing to have a chat as you walk exactly. past. Maybe chat and chew gum, but not smoke. I don't like smoke. So you went along and got the job. Owen yep. interviewed you. Yep. And that was it. You're in the share market, effectively. Correct. And SBC, as I remember it, were great in the small cap area. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I can't remember whether they were exclusively there, they were but huge they had a great team that did very well in small caps. Yeah. So Angus Murnahan. Andrew Rennie, they were, you know, predominantly doing the small caps. Obviously, Owen was there as well. And then property was the other big one, property trust. So that's where Mark Steiner and John Carter ran that team. And you landed, were you the only female in the office? No, Anne Diamond, head of investor relations at Oil Search, was also there. As an analyst? Yes, doing oil. Okay. And how was that? Tell me what, what you learnt there. Was that, was that a real eye-opener? Uh, that was really long hours. It was incredibly exciting, loud, really amazing learning environment, um, thrown in at the deep end, loved every minute of it. You did small caps? You did I was paper and packaging and small oh. caps, yeah, and, you know, worked with Owen. 
And my memory of it, a lot of well-known male identities in the yes. market. Blokey or not blokey? Or a real meritocracy if you're up for it? A meritocracy is a good word. Blokey, yes, because it was still dominated by blokes um, and there was still, you know, lunches, so lunch lots. Um, but no, hard working. And was that exciting? Did, did, oh, totally Did exciting. you get a feel for that, that we're here to make money? Because totally. that's the other element of the market, isn't it? Yes, yes, totally. And then there was the whole... IPO, investment banking part of it as well. So interaction of that. And you went, SBC went into Warburg's? Yes. And you went over in that group. Yes, yes. But there was, a, there was a cull? There was a total cull. So only four of us, I think, in the analyst group got to go over. And that was, again, moving into the big leads because SBC was a real fixed interest house at that time and small in equities. And then Potter Warburg was huge in equities and we put the two together. So that was an opportunity, but so do you think it was then that you thought, I'm actually pretty good at this? You could say um, that to yourself given... I was still on a massive learning curve. I mean, I was so young. I was in, you know, I guess mid to late 20s and just working really long hours and, you know, really enjoying um, anything I was thrown. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's one thing to be an analyst. It's another thing to learn how to invest. And I think I learned how to be a good analyst and how to get on with corporates at under SBC. Uh, I think I learned how to invest when I was at Colonial. And just on on that, so it, when you went to Warburgs, were were you broking then as an analyst? Yes. To uh, Colonial First State, where eventually you, you get your job, or no. that wasn't in your sphere. No, no, I did BT and AMP and National Mutual. I don't remember because if you think about it, First State, which became obviously Colonial First State, it started with fifty million dollars as uh, part of the Bank of New South Wales, and that's what Greg was given, and it was predominantly, I think, the staff super fund at the time. So he just started that with fifty million dollars, and that was in the early 90s. So it sort of grew from there. And SBC and Warburg came together when? What year was that? That was 95. Right, so like out of 95. a recession, yeah. things are picking up, the market's yeah. doing quite well yeah. and we're heading towards the, the tech boom that yes. eventuated the back half of yeah. the 90s. Yeah. You go to uh, lunch, Yeah. Uh, so West Farmers lunch. Yeah, well, dinner actually. Um, so what actually happened was I stepped into, uh, I found basically the Warburg environment too much at the time. So I decided. What do you mean by that? Um, I wanted to ch change. I wanted to move into funds management. I had a number of job offers from fund managers asking if I wanted to be an analyst. And if you remember at the time, the superannuation industry, compulsory super had just happened. And so they were starting to get all these fund flows. And so all these different teams were you know, recruiting different people. And so I actually went and left SBC Warburg and went to Prudential to work for a lady um, by the name of Sarah Pizzi, um, who became Sarah Durham. That was- To, to manage money. To manage money side. on the buy side. Yeah, before first day. Because in those days, the broker probably still, a good broker's probably still earned more than a good fund manager by a fair quantum, or is that wrong? Or is that changing at that point? Uh, so the exciting still, bit was the broker. That's what correct. The broker still earned a lot of money. But no, I just had this incident where I didn't feel supported with regards to a corporate. And so I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but I decided that it was best to take one of those job offers. So that was a trigger, but you must have been thinking about the buy side 
was something you wanted to do? You wanted to test yourself? Yeah. On that side? Yeah, definitely. It's more the move to, into investing. And so the problem, the issue became that I uh, moved to Prudential and they were a growth style manager, but six months into the job, London, which owned Prudential, decided that globally um, they were going to become a deep value manager. Price to book is then number one measure to pick stocks. So I had made a really poor career choice, but tip to young players, if that's happened to you, put your head down and work hard and eventually someone else will, you know, make a job offer for you if you keep in touch, right, with the headhunters, et cetera, um, you can move on. But why, why were you a growth person? Who, who had influenced influenced you at that point? Because normally you've, the first people you deal with or who are mentors are going to have a big influence on how you think about the market. Yeah, true, true. I think because I'd been, I mean, I'd looked at paper and packaging and building materials and, you know, these other... Very cyclical. Yeah, very cyclical businesses. And I didn't, I couldn't, I couldn't see how you'd make money out of them long term. So to me, it was sort of going up and down this cycle in terms of earnings and the share prices would follow the earnings, which is a, you know, classic thing that share prices do. They follow the earnings growth of a company. Uh, and so I was more interested in those companies that could have steady, you know, incremental growth over a long period of time driven by things like, you know, demographics or you know, store rollout in retail or, you know, just make it easier for yourself in terms of the investing story. So you worked it out yourself. That was felt most comfortable. Oh, I don't know if it, I'd had a light bulb moment. I probably got taught more of that at, at Colonial. I was still more interested in pulling companies apart and doing the whole, you know, still spreadsheets analyzing. and analysing and everything. Um, and, I, you know, the light bulb hadn't really gone off. I think I was too young at that stage. So what, how were you feeling? So you go to Prudential, it all seems terrific. Yeah. And then yeah. big change in strategy. And yeah. you knew from that point onwards, you, did you come into work the next day and go, great, I don't really want to do this? We had to t turn our portfolio over, the whole thing. From We got rid of everything that was growth and went into deep value and we underperformed and it was terrible. <laughs> and it was a terrible place to work and to be, you know. Um, now... That's when I went on that Wes Farmers tour and met uh, Greg Perry. Oh, it was a tour, was it? Mm, yeah. So it was a dinner on the tour that mm, you... Yeah, I just happened to sit next to him. We started talking about, you know, politics and uh, what's going on in the stock market and different, you know, companies and strategy and economics and everything. We had this great conversation and, um, you know, nice to meet you, see you later. And then I got a phone call a few weeks later from a headhunter saying... Are uh, you interested? Greg's looking for a new analyst at, you know, first date. Do you want to come and meet him? Um, and my first meeting, actually, the first interview I had was with Ian Harding because Greg had apparently already said, I want to hire this girl. Can you meet her and see if you like her? Um, and so Ian met, and Ian's, you know, Mr. Charmer. So very intellectual, interesting guy. Uh, and so we had a you know, great meeting as well. Then he came back to Greg and said, yep, no worries. And so I And the job was what? Oh, it was an analyst, analyst role. Reporting um, into both of them? Yes, yes. And it was part of the team. So uh, Graham Burke was already there. Barry Henderson was already there. Alex Gallard on the dealing desk, you know, who's now obviously at First Centia um, as an analyst. Uh, Julie Carter was there. So, yeah, it was a um, reasonable team. And then it obviously got bigger as the farm got bigger. And the environment run by two older males yeah. and subsequently retired and Greg did quite a few years yeah. ago. 
Was that what was it like for a younger female analyst? Did, did that actually come into the equation? No, I don't think Greg's like that at all. So I think, and you know, no, I I thought I always felt um, as I was being challenged, and we were a team. Yeah, definitely. And both those men, vastly different people. Yes. Greg wound up like as my grandfather used to say, silly as a two bob watch, but very <laughs> brilliant at what brilliant. he did. Yes. But high intensity. Yes. Uh, Ian, as you described, a charmer, but a totally different type of person, slower talking. Yes. Uh, fairly level. Greg yeah. used to go up and down. How did you handle that? That They always say that the, best, the first person you have to manage in the office is your boss. If you can manage your <laughs> boss, then you're a chance of surviving. So yeah. Greg, and I say this with a bit of knowledge because I, at the time I was a journalist. Yeah working and covering um, media and telcos, mm. which was Greg's special interest area, mm. and spoke to him quite a bit. And he was a terrific, terrific, yeah. um, he taught me a lot yeah. about what to look for. Yeah. But not easy to manage in terms of just those incredible energy bursts. And but that's why you had Chris Cuff, who was CEO at the time. <laughs> so, so Chris's that. job was to keep. Chris's job was to make sure that Greg had everything he needed and was, um, could be happily investing. I mean, I mean, the audience probably don't know because they, you know, probably not a lot of them would have uh, know Greg, but you know, his track record was second to none, like 10% compound over the index for years. And so that $50 million that we talked about before at First State um, within Bank of New South Wales, you know, he grew to 24 billion by 2002. Uh, he was the fund manager of that decade. Correct, correct. And was, the market suited him to a degree, but... Correct. He, yeah. he was he, he nailed it through that yeah. period. Yeah. Did he teach you overtly teach you this is what we're looking for, sit down with you, or did you just have to learn about the way he did things by watching him? No, because we had the um, the philosophy was the overarching philosophy about the share prices following the earnings growth, but also that the GDP plus theme was there. So go and find me companies that can grow their earnings greater than the economy. Sounds simple. Sounds really but it, simple. But it wasn't the bread and butter of Australian investors at the time. No, no. But it wasn't sort of overarching. And so at the time too, we were lucky because there were more healthcare companies coming on, like, you know, CSL, for example, telcos, media, more our style of companies were coming to the market. And then you also had this wonderful privatisation um, that we saw through, you know, the Commonwealth Bank, Qantas, everything as well. And then the big one was infrastructure, which really was Ian Harding's baby. Uh, and he was one of the first big investors to recognise that trend and, you know, support that growth of the um, different infrastructure stocks that came to market. And as an analyst, what did they demand from you? Uh, so I often laughed because, and one of the things that I always say to our analysts as well, you've got to be really prepared before you go in to a corporate meeting, right? And so my role really was to be on top of everything to do with that company in terms of financials, but strategy. And so when we would meet the corporates, um, you know, Greg often would say, well, she's the boss, she's going to ask the questions and I will come in over the top when I feel necessary sort of thing. And so he always gave me free reign with the companies. But So I'm, you would run the meeting? Yeah, I'd run the meeting. And, um, and what kind of people were you dealing with then? Oh, some great characters. Everyone from, you know, Jerry Harvey to, you know, Ziggy Skarsky to, um, you know, James Packer and you know, the boys at PBL um, through to, 
oh, I had one meeting with Rupert Murdoch. That was amazing. Um, but all different characters, yeah. And then, then it reached the crescendo. You guys were growing at a million miles an hour. Yeah, we had Pac-Man. Pac-Man, Peter Smedley kept buying businesses. And then remember, Commonwealth Bank bought Colonial in 2000. And so the amount of money you're managing, not only through incredible performance, but through mergers and whatnot, ballooned to... Yeah, over the $20 billion. Which must have been difficult. Incredibly difficult because everything we started doing was a substantial shareholder notice change. Um, So, and that's when Chris very cleverly came up with the strategy to do the platform part of Chris Cuff. Yeah. And how did that change things? Well, we no longer got the flows. <laughs> and the birth of the boutique started, you know, because he was supporting, you know, 452 Capital and things like that. So, which, which evolved out of various people, yeah. managers. Yeah. So what, what, give us a feel for what the environment was like. It was very competitive. There was Perpetual were at the top of their game. Yeah. You had Peter Morgan. You had BT yeah. with Rowan Headley. Yes. It was, a, it was some big... Big institutions around town, butting heads type of thing. Was it secretive? Was it games <laughs> being played? Um, I don't know if it was secretive. Uh, we had to be very uh, careful. I mean, I ended up, my husband actually worked at BT on the international side. And so Greg was always really suspicious. Husband then? Husband now. Same husband. No, then though. <laughs> <laughs> I, I understand that. But were you married at that point? I got married in 2001, but when I still remember telling Greg that I was getting engaged to, you know, this guy I'd been dating him, it was bad enough that I was dating the enemy, let alone to be (laughs) marrying the enemy. (laughs) (laughs) So, no, it was fine, but uh, it was good. And they all knew it. I know Greg and Peter Morgan were great mates and Mm. had interest in horses and whatnot. But then we, we reached the peak, and as we know, BT kind of came a cropper to a degree, even though they had also fabulous performance, great mm, managers. Mm. But but they always, unfortunately, as, as long as they were remembered for the 87 and how well they did in the 87 crash, they were remembered for the OneTel yes. investment towards the end. And yes. we all know that OneTel went belly up and yeah. it was it was a headline disaster mm. for Australia at the end of that tech boom. But you guys never, that would have been in your area. Mm. Run us through, did you, what, what would you do in terms of an investment there and how did you dodge that bullet? Because it became a big company in Australia. Oh, totally. Um, so we had an investment already in PBL and that was through the Crown um, acquisition and they took that on because um, we thought that was highly attractive at the time. And then, of course, along came OneTel. So, you know, we were told about it from PBL guys, you know, you should go and have a look at this. And so we did, I spent a lot of time looking at the business Um one of the things that Greg was also good at, as much as he liked um, tech stocks and um, telcos and media, he was very anti really speculative um, companies. He really would like to see a track record, a bit of a history of track record before he'd you know, back these companies. Uh, and so at the time I was sent, they had offices in Amsterdam and London, so I was sent all around um, trying to work out whether or not we should follow BT effectively. So you got on a plane and went yeah. and saw all these offices. Yeah. Uh, and I remember ringing Greg and saying no. And then they did this placement and he said, you know, this is a really big roll of the dice, you know, because we say no and it's successful and it ends up being, you know, a very successful company 10 years hence, then we're going to look like, you know, idiots. But I'm... Had he backed you? Backed me. Um, I mean, they obviously did the due diligence as well and I sort of prepared 
um, papers and things for them. And what made you say no, <sighs> given the pressure involved? Uh, well, I didn't realise the extent of the billing issues, but I think when I was in the offices, I thought it was quite chaotic. That was sort of the vibe I got when I was there. Because they were just here in the, in Sydney as well yeah, and you walked in. In Castlereagh Street. And it was chaotic. There was a lot of people buzzing around and it wasn't a normal corporate office. Yeah, exactly. But there must have been a bit more. Cash flow well, was poor. Yes, cash flow is poor. I couldn't get comfortable really with um, management. <laughs> uh, and then we also didn't like, I mean, we didn't like to be pressured either. And we also felt like when we were... Had, we had Optus, we had PBL, you know, we had other investments. So we didn't, we just decided, right, we'll play one till via PBL. Um, and day. also we had News Corp as well, so we didn't need it. So Greg was always very big on body language. Oh, yes, true. Meeting people, yes. trying to find signs. One of the yes. great advantages as professional investors, you get to meet the people who run companies. Yes, and you get to try and read how they behave and, and what yes. they do. I'll never forget Greg telling me that he went to a lunch for a, a company, I remain nameless, and he noticed that that the guy looked stressed who was running it. And then when he sat down to present the lunch, um, he had six or seven glasses of wine over the lunch. <laughs> exactly. He, he just thought, well, there's something's not. This this is a lunch middle of the week presenting. You don't need six or seven glasses of wine. And he thinks he. Well, he tells me he came out and sold the whole stock. Now, I don't know whether that was true or it was just a bundled story, but did, did, did you take anything from that? Because when we go into Wavestone and what you've created, mm. it's a lot about behavioural elements of a company, mm. but there's also that element of do you spend a lot of time trying to get comfortable with the managers of those companies and how they behave? Does that play a role? And as we know, there was, was Jody Rich and there was Brad Keeling, Mm. They were unusual people. Mm. And so did that come through later on and, and in that point? Yeah. I mean, I've, I'm not going to tell you which company it was, but even last year, that was an alarm bell for me on a company I went to and the guy, the CEO was drinking too much. And I came back and I said, this guy's under pressure. You don't drink in front of investors. Right. So it, it, those sort of things, yeah, they stay with you. And were you right? <laughs> tell Taysan, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've been in a few meetings where they've yelled or got upset or swore. In yeah. the Simple things that you do casually. Yes. But it, it's not quite right. Yeah, I mean, you don't want bells. them to be absolute ice either. You want them to show passion and a belief in their business and where it's heading. Um, but at the same time, yes, those telltale signs of stress do come out, don't they? I think so. And just strange behaviour makes mm. makes you start to think a little bit. Mm. You know, is this the right person to run the company? So I think it's in two thousand and two that they allow you to manage some money. Yes. So was that a lot of money? A small amount? <sighs> well, in hindsight, it was a reasonable amount of money. Um, there was about I'm going to remember this about two hundred million, I think, in the top twenty Australasian fund, and in the sector mutual fund, I think it was about a billion dollars. Uh -huh. But we're all under the same umbrella, same process. So there was oversight from them, you know, with me. Well, that that was a that was the that was the way you progressed within. Yes. So Simon Shields had managed, I think, the sector mutual fund, uh, and so it was it was interesting because sector mutual you couldn't do go too wrong because you had to own stocks in each sector. Um, and it's quite hard, really, to outperform because you couldn't go zero. You're just going overweight and underweight within each sector. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and whereas the top 20 was much more interesting. Uh, but that's where I learned the um, interesting part about diversification, but also benchmark, because the benchmark was the New Zealand Stock Exchange. And at the time, um, Telecom New Zealand was 30% of the index. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the only decision you have to make. Exactly. Am I going to have zero or I'm going to have something? But even if you had something, like say you had 10% of your fund in this stupid stock, you know, if it's a 30% part of the index, if it decides to move 10%, it's going to cost you. And so was, well, this might um, give me the answer anyway, but was there a stock in that period from 2002 right through to when Wavestone started? Was there a stock or a couple of picks that you did and you thought, because you mentioned before, analysing is different to stock selection. Was there something you remember that said, gosh, I, I can do this, you know, it's game on, I, I've, I've got the confidence to go ahead? Because that's a big step from analysing through to actually formulating the portfolio, picking yeah. stocks. Yeah, true. Um, so I think the thing during that time, look, um, Macquarie was obviously a big one and always has been a big one of mine, which I've followed for a long period of time. So that did extremely well through that, through that period. So that was in my fund. The other important part was that I'd, um, I'd done banks and I'd also done um, sort of the media telco as sector an as an analyst. And so I hadn't done, you know, infrastructure, healthcare, resources, that, those sort of things as well. So I was drawing on the team to get the benefit of those stocks. So learning also about um, those other sectors, I found fascinating even as a PM and that whole relationship between PM and analyst as well. Um, and so I think over that time, um, you know, you sort of had hits and misses, but uh, the power also of putting some small cap stocks in there that, you know, would run run for you at the time. Now you're going to tell me what, what give me an example, and I'm trying to rack my brain. But you're allowed to do that. You're allowed to introduce a small cap stock into a top 20 fund or? Yeah, we were. Yeah, we did. I mean, at that stage too, we had Barry and Graham managing the small cap stocks and that, you know, we could you know, talk to them as well about putting some of those into the other stock funds. So I gather from this period, you, you learnt to become a generalist. Yes. So talking to David Paradise recently. Yes. David said he would never hire anyone in, unless they were a generalist because that's how they manage money across a lot of different sectors. Yeah. Was that an important period? that learning about all these different things and how they worked and what drove the share price? Oh, definitely. And also you're getting exposure to other companies and then you could obviously cross compare. You also have to learn that you can't always get into the weeds. You can't, you know, as an analyst, you've got to learn when you should, as a PM, deep dive into that stock if there's an issue around it or, you know, news, new news flow as in an acquisition, et cetera. Yeah. So you have to focus in on the two, three, four things that were going to drive that stock and identify them. Mm -hmm. That became a key element as opposed to knowing every yes. every every cent, every yes. dollars of revenue and where it came from. Yeah. yeah. So then we move on to 2006. So what, what, mm -hmm. what, what Colonial First State unraveled to a degree, or well, that team did. They went in their different ways. So what, what was that period and what was the catalyst for that? Did it just... Was it corporate? Did it become too big or? <laughs> well, Commonwealth Bank had taken it over in 2000. 
My, I, I still remember leaving in 2004 when the Commonwealth Bank yellow pens came into it. We weren't allowed to have any other pens except the Commonwealth Bank yellow pens. I thought, right, we're the brown cardigans. Off we go. <laughs> so so they was, started to interfere. They started to interfere. And uh, it wasn't, I mean, Greg had resigned and left um, and then Ian left. Uh, and so I thought, right, you know, also, I, I would, to be honest, I wanted to go and have children as well. Right, but had the culture changed? Is that what you're saying? Oh, it had. The magic had kind of yeah, started to leave it, the room. It had changed. It definitely had changed, um, and it was big. You know, um, a lot of money, and uh, was it just wasn't as enjoyable. Yeah. Because the performance had been must have been enticing to try and keep it together. Because the performance had been well above what the index had done over mm, that period, even mm. though you were big. Yeah. So it must have been a hard time. Yeah, it was a hard time. And that's where Raz, my now business partner, he came um, around that time uh, into uh, First State and had sort of was one of the people that kept it together. Right, um, that's your business partner now yeah, at Wavestone. Yeah. But th this was 10 years earlier or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So then 2004 comes. Yeah. Um, nature knocks and you're yeah. thinking, I want to have a family. Yes. What happens in those couple of years? How do you manage that? So from 2004 through to 2006. Yes. What what happens and? Well, I did work for Greg again at QED Capital. Um, with Barry and Greg. Yes, uh, for about oh, nine or ten months, and then I went off and had my first child. Right. Mm. And but it wasn't long before you were back. Yeah. Did you end up having three kids? Yes. Yep. So every second year. <laughs> <laughs> uh, eventually, so that was you know that was fantastic, great time, and then. So Wavestone started in July 2006 um, and I'd been overseas with my husband because of his business interests and I rang Graham and said, uh, you know, I'd been offered a job um, by one of the international, big international firms who was looking at setting up in Australia. And he said, oh, don't do that. We're going to start, you know, what was called Waterstone Capital at the time. Waterstone. Mm. And we're going to do something different. We're going to do long short. And this is mid-2006, mid so the... <laughs> and, and Waterstone came from Ian, did it? Yes, they, yes. But very funny story and the reason why it went from Waterstone to Wavestone, I think it was around 2007, eight, that we had to change our name. So we kept getting these letters from this hedge fund in the US saying, our name is Waterstone, you need to change your name. And we just ignore it because we go, well, we're just an Aussie equity manager, what are these people knowing? And so... <laughs> We just finally ended up getting this legal letter saying we were going to be sued unless we changed our name. So then we was this mad scramble. How do we change our name? What do we do? You know, and we didn't want to go too far away from Waterstone, so it became Wavestone. And so that was after. So you actually started the business at Waterstone. But so then you you start Wavestone. You come mm. in and you Graham mm. does a good sell job and gets you yeah. on board. Yeah. And so it was Ian, Graham, and yourself. Yeah. And what what was. It, it, you had the GDP plus philosophy, which was mm. a great catch cry. It was yeah. You always want those those selling points where it's nice and neat and yes. can, you know dense, so people can get their mind around it. Yeah. Um, was that the idea? Even though you were going to go long and short and uh, be slightly no, different. No, we changed. We and changed. why would you change? Given that's what you. Yeah. Okay. So the. It, it, it's hard, like through the first eight years, as you say, we were very um, lucky in hindsight with the you know growth market. It's a bit you know a bit like now really, uh, and with the growth stocks. And so we wanted to put a value, more of a valuation discipline on it as well. So we had um, what we ended up coining 
companies that we were looking for were sustainable competitive advantage. And that was a sort of qualitative filter, which was like GDP plus in terms of the companies we were looking for. Um, and then we would say we were growth at reasonable price manager. So we had this you know, valuation overlay. A GARP manager. Yeah. GARP. And sustainable, which is a great word for the modern times. Oh, it is. And we coined it in 2006. So here you go. And we Were now... people talking about sustainable? Yeah. Because now, now it's almost like a comfort word that it applies yeah. to not only the environment, but everything sustainable, that it goes on. And yes, yes. But then no one was using it? No, they weren't. But we've always had that way of looking at companies. We always look out, you know, five years. We always think, you know, the decisions management make today are going to have an impact, obviously, on the company for a long period of time. And so they better make the right decisions that make the company sustainably competitive <laughs> rather than, you know, these short-term decisions. So hence why we're attracted to stocks that have longer duration. What, what was the idea then? What, what did you think you could make Wavestone into? You, you've been to the big end of town. You've been to 24 billion. Yeah. We're kind yeah. of masters of the market, yeah. but yeah. with that comes a lot of pressure. Yeah. I mean, was this than... always going to be smaller and more nimble, or did you have great ambitions at that time? Well, along came the global financial crisis. But yes, we were lucky because there were a couple of clients on the retail side, high net worth individual um, and advisor groups that supported us in the beginning. Uh, and then we had to go through the GFC years, which were pretty, you know, difficult and lean. Uh, and then we also, at that time, 2008, joined up with Challenger Financial Services. So they're our uh, partner and they do all our distribution administration. But you're all equity holders. Correct. And which is highly unusual for women right. to run their own, yeah. instead in the intro, the funds management yeah. business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Since I started, whenever it was, 20-odd years ago, there was definitely more women in the industry, but yes. very few driving the bus. Yes. There tend to still be men. Yeah. What, why is that? <sighs> why is that? I think for a number of reasons. There's 50% of females in finance graduates. So when we – I'm part of um, Future Impact, which is an organisation – that has uh, garnered all of the industry super funds and a lot of the leading fund managers to try and make a change in the industry to um, get more females into the industry. And when they did the research as to why it was, it was a lot about the fact that the university students didn't even know that funds management existed, right, as an industry. Or their perception of our industry was appalling. It related to Wolf of Wall Street or the Billions TV series. So not particularly attractive places for women to work. Uh, and so we've gone about trying to change the mindset and talk to girls on campus to make sure that they understand that there is an industry out there. Um, and I think that's particularly important, um, not only for the fundies, but also for the industry super funds. They want to see more people coming through. And it's not just equities, it's all asset classes. Um, and then the other thing you see is you see a lot of women in the um, back office rather than front office roles uh, within fund management companies. So you've got to pull them through into the front office. So it didn't seem like you hit too many glass ceilings except your Japanese experience, which yeah. is a slightly different culture. But in Australia, you didn't seem to hit too many glass ceilings. You were happy to ask a question or say, I want to do this. Yes. So is it a bit more than that? You mentioned that a lot of girls don't know about the industry or yeah. they've heard some bad stories, which happens in yeah. any industry. Yeah. I kind of wonder, is there elements about, especially ownership and taking that next step, even when you do get in, well, I can mm. do this myself. Mm. There's an element of confidence. There's an element I'm prepared to take the risk. Mm. Do, you think, mm. do you think women in general find risk hard to deal with? 
or, or is that is that not the case? Because a lot a lot of men, uh, going back to Greg and the likes of Peter Morgan, they love risk in terms of that. They love the horses. They'll take a, yeah. a risk here. They love the, the adrenaline of I'm going to buy a stock and if I... Yeah. You know, there's, there's risk all right. Equities are risk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. True. Running your own business is a risk yeah. of sorts. Do you think do you think women struggle to, no, to take that risk? I don't think that women struggle to take risk. Uh, I think there are plenty of women out there that can still do, you know, take a risk. So I don't think that that's the reason. I wonder, so we look at what's happened with the corporate boards, right? And in 2009, I think there was something like 9% of the uh, people on boards were women. And today, I think it's 32% they've just announced. And that's like 11 or 12 years later. So they had to do that through a quota system to get people to change it. It's a, you know, subconscious bias. And I wonder if that's what we're going to have to do in this industry to change it. Because the problem is that unless the, I guess, the money masters, the industry super funds or the large um, allocators of money. I mean, now IWF, you know, managing money with MLC, that merger, they'll manage nearly $200 billion. Do they start demanding of our industry, you know, where are the women? Um, well, they've done other things. Yeah. Coal. Correct. So I think, you know, it is changing um, and we have to encourage women to get through and come through. Um, you also need the right support, support around you. A lot of people say to me if, when they work in Asia and they've got a family in Asia and they work in, you know, this in industry, there's a lot of, obviously, support at home. Well, we don't have that same level of support in this economy. So, I, you know, I think that government needs to do more on childcare um, to support women working full-time in any industry. So let's, let's go there. What, what's your day like, given... I gather if you're going to be running your own business and you're working it every day, yeah, and it's this is this is what you're dedicated to to make yeah. it work. Yeah, what does a normal day look like? You've got three kids, you've got a family. Yeah, I know a lot of men have as well, but it, it, obviously there's different requirements at different times in your life. Yes, to to that family. Yes. So what does it look like today? What what could uh, a, a young woman think about if they, if they were interested in that industry what are they in for well i love early. that i love the quentin bryce saying which is women can have it all they just can't have it all at the same time right so if i go back to my time at colonial where i become a portfolio manager in order to have children i had to step back into an analyst role right so i i didn't i wasn't a pm for some time until you know later in wavestone uh, and so the reason I did that was because I couldn't work full time, which I think you need to do if you're going to be a portfolio manager. Um, and so I stepped back into an analyst role, um, which suited me because I was, had three young children that I needed to, you know, <laughs> look after. Um, and so now that they're older, I've got two in high school and, you know, one just um, going into year six then that makes a difference in terms of their requirements. They've got longer days when they're, you know, at school and they've got after-school activities and things. And they're independent. They can get around. Correct. Work out their timetables with you and they can yes, implement it themselves. Yes, And it's co-parenting with a husband. So husband is also involved. And we have a nanny that, you know, does all, a lot of the background stuff. Yeah. So let's just run through your average day. Up fairly early? Kids off at school at 730 
And then, and then do you start? Do you start reading? Do you start looking at I, overseas markets? I always do it first thing in the morning before they get up around so you wake six up early. thirty. Yeah, and look at it then, uh, and find out what's happened, and then watch a bit of CNBC if I need to, uh, and then flick through the papers uh, as well, and then you know get them off to school. I usually try and make the lunches the night before, and then get them off, get me off, and get so it's me not into only the our family that does yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm pretty slow in the morning, I, you know, um, if I'm to be honest, in terms of try to get to the office by 8.30. By 8.30 and the day lasts till? It goes all day and even at lunchtime is just grabbing something and back at my desk. So. Or meeting with a company or going to a presentation. Oh, yeah, 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 exactly. So lunch, lunch isn't a break. The enjoyable part of the day. Mm. And, and you get home by? I hope to get home by 6.30. And is right. that the end of the day or...? No. Or I do you watch markets open in Europe? Uh, no, 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 I don't do that. I do, um, I do read the papers and look, flick through everything and I will watch the news most nights. Mm. So that means that you've got to be fairly dedicated to it and you, you've now spent 20-odd years seeing the world through the guise of the share market. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But now is, the joy is, is... exhausting. But now the joy is I've got the dinner table going again. So guess what? Guess what my kids like to know? <laughs> what you've done during the day, who you've met. Exactly. It goes in again, next generation. Which is fine if you love it. So let's let's ask that question while we're still talking about women in the market. Mm. Do you think, so you go to university, even back in the 80s when, when I went, half the accountants that were studying or the yeah. economic students were women. Yeah. And it had changed by then, but it hasn't filtered through. And I always wondered whether there's a level of interest as much in, because we know engineering's dominated by men, other things are dominated by women and there's a level of interest that might be conditioning. I don't know. But I remember being at a, at a Christmas function mm. once and mm. we were playing bowls mm. and I was standing there talking to one of the other male members, an older person than me, and we were talking about the economy and one of the ladies in the investment team said, can't we talk about something else? Uh. And I said rudely, if you can come up with a better conversation, sure. Right. And she got upset and walked away. So I was being rude. Yeah. But I kind of thought that's interesting because even though you're at a Christmas function, you, you work at the same job and what's of real interest to most of us is yes. what we're doing. Yes. It doesn't stop. It's 24 hours. Yes. Do you think there is an element of that? I shouldn't pick on one example, but is there an element that, that generally women aren't as interested in the world of finance or is that an unfair or they just haven't been encouraged to be? Well, I mean, the banks have all got their full half of women and, you know, it's just particularly I think in funds management it's pretty bad. Um, even investment banking seems to be getting better in terms of having more women in it. Um, and most corporates, I mean, I usually get asked by CEOs, where are all the women? <laughs> you know, I'd, and... Um, Ross McEwen's just come back from the UK, you know, CEO of NAB. He said exactly that to me. He said, I met so many women when I was in the UK. Why am I why aren't I meeting them here? So So you think it's a based on that an Australian issue that's just got to be worked on and maybe correct. the quota system. I think it comes back down to, you know, knowledge of the industry, childcare support policies, um, and supporting women through those years. Because there are a lot of women that I worked with and with my peers at the time that aren't working in our industry now. So they've left the industry. Mm -hmm. um, so that's because they've got to those child 
rearing years and chosen a different career path. You would never have left the industry in your no. own mind because you wanted to leave it? <laughs> there another career choice or once you were in, you thought, well, this, uh, this is it? No. And even now I sort of struggle in terms of what else I would do. Except for I love, I must admit, I do like doing the community charity thing. So I have done quite a bit of that. Okay. So temperament. Yes. As a, as a money manager, fund manager. Yes. Do you need to have a steady temperament? Oh, yes, that can help. Being no, not emotional, which is really hard. And that's the hardest part, isn't it? To fight your emotions. Because usually you should do the opposite to what you're feeling. Um, so I have to remind myself of that. Um, and we've had, you know, perfect example going through COVID again. Uh, with money cycles. I mean, I, people always say to me, oh, when should I put money in the stock market? And I said, don't worry, don't worry. Usually at some point during the year, the market corrects, you know, usually about a 10% correction and it's a good entry point. That's when you should put your money in if you're waiting to put money in. Except for those odd. Except for those odd pickups <laughs> like GFC and COVID-19 where it just, you know, there's no bottom and you're suddenly reminded that shares are just that, a piece of paper of a share in a company. So that, that's the really hard bits. So we've had one this year, the 30-odd, 37, 38% yeah. in five weeks. GSC was even longer and felt like a lifetime within a, you know, a life. That was prob probably more enjoyable because you had more time to think. <laughs> but what, what can you do and how do you, how do you handle it? How do you talk to investors? You give oh, us a bit of insight. Do you feel sick at any stage? Do you lose sleep? Do you ride that down? Because they, they happen so quick Yeah, that yeah. it's hard to avoid. Anyone yeah. who says they can pick it, they're lucky rather than... Yeah, exactly. Than, than and it was manage. 12 days and it was, you know, all over and then you, you missed the turn up. Um, it's more the fact that I think we were too slow on the turn up, um, getting more exposure on board. Uh, the It's very, very difficult during that time. I, don't, I didn't ever feel sick. I did lose sleep, of course. Um, and then I was also, you know, it's the communication, communication with your team, uh, your business partners and also your clients. And so I think, you know, Fedante or Challenger were excellent on that part after and during the events of making sure all of our clients, you know, understood how we'd gone, you know, reasons for why, you know, things had occurred, et cetera. So we didn't have any you know, pushback is poor communication. And do those huge market sell-offs like we had this year excite you? Do you, do you have this? <laughs> I always think because I worked with Jeff Wilson for a number of years. Jeff, yeah. after the initial gut-wrenching lurch down, yeah. realising, well, there'll be blood. You always talk about blood on the streets. Yeah. And that's when you make your real money coming yeah. out of it. Yeah. Do you yeah. ever get that way or do you... Or do you just ride each bump and... Oh, I think I get excited because, for example, you know, having the opportunity to buy really high quality companies at, you know, what are the, the old saying of bargain basement prices. So everything's on sale. So that excites you. That really excited me. So we bought, you know, REA and we bought Zero um, at the bottom and they've subsequently doubled. So things like that make you... Um, so happy. now you're disappointed. They're not bargain basement anymore. Exactly. They're not bargain basement anymore. And you're sitting there going, I need to wait 12 months to sell them almost, to get, you know, being tax aware. Um, but, uh, the, and even, I mean, November's been enjoyable because, you know, the market was up so strongly and was really responding to all the positive news that we had through the month. Hmm. 
Okay, so if it, and I encourage anyone to look at your website mm. because it really details yeah. how Wavestone goes about yeah. managing money, which is terrific. Um, and you talk about ESG, mm. you talk about the way you go about um, testing the DNA, mm. um, getting into those companies. So I'd encourage anyone to do that. One thing I am interested in, though, is poor behaviour or not acceptable behaviour from managers. A little bit like what we're talking about, Greg, in the drinking episode before with the manager. How do you feel about that and how does that come in? So recently we've seen some dubious behaviour, say, from Kogan, where they issued the the, uh, options to the managers. Mm. Didn't seem really the right thing to do. Mm. Mm. It's a moral issue as opposed to a legal issue. Mm. Um, we've seen in previous times, say with David Jones going back all those years, Mark mm. McGuinness obviously yeah. got caught out and and um, got removed from his position but subsequently went to Premier, obviously a very good retailer, but th- there was a cross going back. And mm. it seems to me the market will put all that kind of average behaviour behind them mm. as long as the company performs. Do, do you... Build that into what you're, how you're investing, those kind of issues. I've pulled a few out, that, and you've probably got hundreds of others. But yeah, does yeah. that kind of behavioural element come into how you think about things? Yeah, because you've got to go back to what your role is. Your role is a steward of other people's capital, right? So you've got this fiduciary responsibility to manage that to your best ability, but also to remind boards and uh, corporate CEOs and CFOs that you know you're an investor in their company and they've got to manage that capital appropriately and act responsibly within the law. You know, follow the regula- regulations of that industry. We've had obviously all the mis-selling, etc., through the um, uh, financial you know financial issues with the Royal Commission. Uh, and so there's been some pretty testy conversations. We meet with all of our chairs of our investee companies. We've just gone through that rounds with the AGM's season. And some of the conversations are really prickly. But if you put your position honestly to them, I've, I've, we really don't have any that heated conversations with people. You know, they, you put your point forward. They usually understand that point and say, you know, thanks very much and this is what we're going to do about it. Or they say, well, you're a minority and we're not going to do anything about it and you sell the shares. <laughs> <laughs> that happens. That happens. So, uh, but then I think, you know, in the case of, you know, Clean Away, they've cleaned clean up. We, we are not an investor in that company, but they have done quite a good job of explaining what they've done around the sort of bullying and harassment claims. And, responded to it. Yeah, responded to. I think the problem for corporate Australia now is that, um, all this sort of information comes out, you know, so they have to have these appropriate policies in place. Maybe it, it, it wasn't before. No, a lot of things done behind closed doors. And and let's stick with the banks for a second. They went through this huge period yeah. of um, called out by the press originally, yeah. yeah, which is press doing its job, Yeah. then escalated into the inquiry, the Royal Commission, mm. and subsequent poor behaviour was found in all different parts and all different mm. banks. Mm. How do you handle that? Because it's very hard to not be a bank investor of some description. You can be underweight. Yes. But yeah. you, you possibly can't be in, have no bank shares yeah. in your portfolio. Exactly. So is it back to that conversation yeah, you said and, before? And, and so one of the other things that we say around our ESG policies is that if we own one share in a company, 
regardless of the fact that we're underweight, we care. We care about the outcome of that company. And I, that's actually one of the things that frustrated me through that t period where there was all these sort of board um, changes going on uh, with the major banks was that not enough investors were standing up and speaking to the boards, um, frankly, about which way the you know the bank should be going and you know when we had those conversations with different banks we just said to them you know you've got to look at the fact that these or these banks are like 200 years old and no one individual should be more important than you know the bank going going forward um, you've got to look at the history you know you're just at a point in time so you're the steward of that bank you've got to um, look for the future and most of the time they were you know, very um, accepting of those comments and um, grateful for the conversation because there weren't that many investors ringing them and talking to them about it. There's been a big overhaul in the management of all the banks yeah. over that period of leading up to it Yeah. when it started to come out. So do you think we're, they're in a better place? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Um, the problem now for them is they're facing the world of open banking and the rise of the fintechs and a lot of these sort of profit pools that they have are being attacked by you know, being new, new players. Yeah, And we've also seen, just to, before we get off that, we've seen Rio go through something similar with yeah, sacred sites. That was horrific. So what, 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 that's another company that's hard to ignore in the Australian context yeah, if you're yeah. a, a big cap investor. Yeah. Do, do you, is, that, is that something else that you would say, hey, we don't like what's happened here? Absolutely. So we wrote a letter um, to the company. We engaged with the company. Um, you know, both through investor relations, but also um, with non-executive directors on the company. Um, and that's, yeah, that's one company that I'd love to see really, more change, you know, bring it home to Australia, out of London would be great. And why is that? Because most of the profits come from Australia. So, you know, I think there should be more Australian representation on that board. Let's talk about Wavestone. Performance has been very solid over the period. Um, it's grown. Ian's retired. Yeah. There's there's the three principles. Number of it, you talked about Macquarie and you've talked about Zero. Mm. It, does the philosophy that you've that you've talked about the sustainable um, competitive advantage does it work? Are you convinced that you went down the right path? And will it continue to work? Do you think? Yeah, I think the hardest thing for us is back to those GDP plus days is no speculative investments. So the hard, one of the hardest things for us this year has been the number of um, investors pouring into these loss making businesses uh, that aren't self funding. Uh, and so you've had, you know, the rise of NextDC and Megaport and all these sort of tech um, businesses uh, that are loss making that you know we sort of scratch our head and say well we can't invest in them because they're you know, not making money and then a lot of the time they capitalize their cost space uh, and we find that um, you know just another black mark against their names versus you know a CSL that has a billion dollars of R&D that it fully costs through its P&L so uh, for that do I think sustainable competitive advantage works? Yes, I do. I think it's a really good uh, framework in which to invest. And I think it's right for the times too, because, you know, in terms of ESG, that's only going to get more. And, and what, what are some of the companies besides the ones we've mentioned that you think are sustainable? Um, so ResMed is another one that we've been involved, you know, invested in for a long period of time. Um, so those ones where the, the demographic tailwinds are behind them, uh, you know, fabulous, which is why CSL is another one that has done well for us there. 
Um, then infrastructure is one we think will come back. I mean, despite the COVID hit and that hurt us earlier in the year, um, because if you look at a lot of the um, transportation infrastructure names, you know, the Sydney airports, the land transurbans, they were all impacted by, you know, COVID and the lack of mobility. Uh, so that will come back. Uh, and so they're names that we continue to back and think over the long term. Because the wonderful thing that, you know, a lot of them have, because they're monopolies, is uh, pricing power. And not many companies actually exhibit that. Um, so infrastructure and healthcare, um, some of the select tech names like a Zero or an REA that perform well. Um, we've done really well in the last 18 months out of nine. You know, near death experience so through COVID, but it's risen from. It's been terrific. <laughs> yeah, it's it? been a terrific one. Um, so that's another one, and that whole move to, um, you know, the Stan is obviously people love that, and then real estate. Blast from the past. Yes. Going back to PBL. Yeah. And now. That you've, you've articulated that there's a strategy that works. Mm. As I said, we were speaking to David Paradise recently. He worries about the active management industry. Most industries outside funds management, we've had technology come in, mm. um, disrupt it, mm. and then a couple of big players emerge. And you've even mentioned a few, like an REA mm. changed the way real estate mm. was transacted in Australia and became mm. a lot, you know, domains of kind of distant second competitor, mm. but own that space. Mm. We're, we're kind of going through it in the money management world. Yes. The big players, the fidelities, the, the various ETFs, which have mm. been boomed. Mm. What's your best defence of active managers? I think you've got to stay more active. So you've actually got to... Uh, you've got to, you know, increase your tracking area, lower number of stocks. You've actually got to really focus on delivering um, after-tax returns is the other one as well. I think that's really important. Um, and then being more ESG aware, that would be sort of the way we would play it for the can, next few years. Can you years. explain for us tracking error? What the oh, sorry. So not hugging the index too much. So you guys do 35, 40 stocks, yeah, which the, is not an index. No, correct. So index of two, two or three hundred stocks. Um, so clearly we don't do that. Um, but the, I guess the number of stocks increases depending on how many small caps we have in the fund. So that's why it varies. Um, so that's what we have to do. I think is as an industry we have to continue and also focus on performance and get achieve those performance goals because that's what you know we're paid to do is deliver our performance. And if we could continue to do that, then we should be able to at least retain the money. Um, and if not. Uh, grow it but you can have a bad year yeah and if you're starting out you yeah. can't make yeah. as always say you can't make your third year your best year yeah because you won't get there yeah, yeah. so uh, that, there's got to be a lot of communication to investors yeah when you have a bad year yes and given the trends do you think that's a threat that you can't really the pressure's on you you, you might be able to have a bad month but a quarter or two quarters or whatever it is mm, mm. is that there's the pressure gone up since Oh, definitely. And I think, you know, you've got to be very focused on terms of reporting season and making sure that, mm. you know, if your, your company is going to deliver in reporting season and also that if they don't, you better make some, you know, um, good decisions around that time and what stocks you've got to move out of the portfolio um, because a lot of the time your performance will be you know, the next few months will be generated on how you went during that reporting season, how your company's delivered. It's, it's become a disaster. It's become a trading event. Yeah. And what, what's strange to me is that continuous disclosure has come in over the years. Yes. But it, it hasn't, it's actually amplified what happens at reporting season. 
Yeah. yeah. So is that a difficult period for you? Depending on how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that was part of our problem for COVID is that February we had a difficult reporting season. So we were sort of behind the eight ball when COVID hit. Whereas in August this year, we had a good reporting season. So, nice. yeah. So we've just said to the team, right, let's focus on February. But that makes shorter term investing when you, you like your longer dated. Yeah, true. But you don't want to hiccup. The problem is you just don't want to blow up. Right. So, so the pressure's always on. Pressure is always on. And you know that. <laughs> <laughs> so before we wrap up on the market, we're at a funny state now. The market's bounced back. We're almost back at the levels in February. Yeah. We've got much looser monetary policy, but we've still got an impaired economy of sorts. Certain things performing, certain things not. So can you run us through your next 12, 24 months, how it plays out now that we've got a slightly better idea than we did in March, April? Yes, and we've just had this gradual sort of snowball, which is China <laughs> changing everything in terms of our export markets. So that would be the concern, is what happens in terms of the you know, export markets. Poor Treasury, we don't own Treasury now. We made the difficult decision to get out of it but before uh, this happened. But um, I think that's going to be very interesting in terms of you know, the diplomacy and what goes on there. We're not alone, though. You know, the rest of the world's facing this in terms of China. It's just that we're so dependent in terms of exports. Um, we're not dependent in terms of capital invested by Australian companies in China, so it doesn't actually get much airplay. Um, but they all you know, really pulled out in the, like, 10 years ago. But what will affect us is what happens with our students, what happens with our tourists. Um, and you know, thankfully, the borders are closed at the moment, so we don't actually know the real underlying impact that we could possibly have. We're all banking on this you know, travel recovery, but we might not get that million plus Chinese tourists back. So you're cautiously optimistic or <laughs> are you a little bit more well, negative yeah, than think... that given the prices, as you said, for a couple of, for a few of your favoured companies, yeah. they're, they're not dirt cheap anymore. They're terrific no, companies. No. They've yeah. got to keep delivering to just yeah. to justify where they are now. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the good news is that we're in this positive earnings revision cycle. Um, which you know is always positive for share prices, but it needed to be because valuations obviously at this stage are elevated. Um, so you've got to look out longer <laughs> to get the um, to get the justification for those uh, share prices. But we're still starting to get some new IPOs coming in as well. That's adding to the mix. A um, bit of takeover, you know, activity. So there's always you know new things to look at. But we'd still go back to those you know core themes or you know sustainable competitive advantage sectors such as healthcare such as infrastructure um, you know technology um, and try and you know pick the best out of those companies and would it would it be wrong to not be in the market over that period given interest rates are so low because people are being forced oh, yeah, yeah exactly that's the problem tina there is no alternative uh, for people you know everyone's being sort of crowded into um, taking on risk aren't they um, you're starting to see the murmurings over the, you know, the property market's picking up here as well. So are we in the cycle where, you know, share market, property market, cash? So They might both go up. Yeah, both go up for a while. Um, so no, I'm, I'm still, I'm cautiously optimistic as you should say, yes. Okay. Now, coming from Brisbane, you'd be a big country music fan. <laughs> Not. And something I ask everyone, Willie Nelson this year at 86. Yes. Song, well, recorded a song called Our Song, and the opening lines to that song are, in this time I have been given to fill my life 
we'd live in. I hope I've done the best that I can do. Do you think you've done the best you can do? Or is the best yet to come? <laughs> no, no. Because as you get older as a manager, it's not always, there could be a prime time for a, a money manager. Oh, yeah, true. No, I would hope the next few years that we can still, you know, crank it out and <laughs> outperform for our investors. Win the tennis tournament. Still. Win the tennis tournament, exactly. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. You're it's been welcome. terrific. Thank you very much for having me. It's tough at the top, but some people just love climbing the mountain and trying to stay there for as long as possible. Even for me, a person who has known the guest for many years, I still haven't quite worked out why they've been able to pull off the remarkable. Each time I talk to them, though, I learn a little more, and today was no exception. If you like today's episode, subscribe through Apple or Spotify, or if you're a Livewire reader, give this wire a like.